beautiful. Love to sing to our God by name, <clears throat> to address him directly, come directly to him, talk to him as he has revealed himself to us. What a joy. Well, good morning, and with Ken in India and the Styers and Jacobs in Fiji, I get to um, jump into the pulpit here and uh, kind of fill in, like Tim said. Um, and last Sunday, <clears throat> I've been going through uh, the book of Ecclesiastes with our high schoolers and uh, hit chapter four. And there was a section in there that I thought this would just be perfect for this Sunday and this morning. <clears throat> it uh, was really a small section, but one that focused on, on work. And it stood out to me. As most of you know, I took a four and a half week sabbatical this summer and the Lord really um, brought, <clears throat> I think, a lot of lessons to mind um, in my own heart, about how I think about work. And these verses here, in the middle of Ecclesiastes 4, I think the Lord really used uh, to drive those nails all the way in, all the way home, so that things would stick. And so I wanted to do that with you guys, is just bring these to you. And so keep that in mind, that I'm still learning uh, in front of you all uh, as I work here. I'm still growing as a pastor and learning how to rely on the Lord uh, ultimately, and uh, this is going to be good for all of us, though. It, it, it uh, happened to line up on this weekend being Labor Day, too, so um, I thought, hey, let's make it work, all right? Uh, so Labor Day is an interesting holiday, um, as Tim had mentioned, maybe sad for him when he was a child, um, but uh, uh, it, the summer's over, the, the school year has started, um, a lot of us have a day off from work. I'm sorry if you're one of those who it doesn't apply to. Um, but, uh, and then an occasion for getting together, grilling out, kind of some of those things. So in the 19th century, uh, the founders of Labor Day at the beginning uh, kind of had some strikes, and they, their day off was a little different uh, to make sure that this Labor Day was guarded. And um, it was really aiming at the, the unifying the formation of labor unions uh, across the states and reducing hours that manufacturers were having to go uh, far too long. And uh, meditation on that and thinking about that, I was like, I, I don't really, you know, think about that a whole lot. And maybe we still don't really know a ton of our history on that. But um, what it did was propel me, launch me back to the first Labor Day, the very first Labor Day. And if you ever thought about, okay, well, yeah, when's the first Labor Day? It wasn't in like 1822 or something. Um, it was much earlier. In fact, it was the first day, first day ever recorded of history. And you know who the worker was? Yeah, God was the ultimate, first, greatest, best laborer. And he created all things that we see in a work week. Uh, six days worked hard and seventh day rested. Let me just read a couple of verses for you in Genesis chapter 2 and 3 to show you these labor days really is what they were being the first that set the scene for the verses we're going to look at in Ecclesiastes 4. And Solomon is most certainly, I believe, thinking on all that is here in the first pages of that first work week ever worked. Look at Genesis 2, 1. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. 
So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that had done, uh, he had done in creation. When you think about this, you know that in chapter 1, when he talked about the creation of mankind, he was going to make us in his image. So that means that we reflect him in some important ways. In ways that you just come right out of the scriptures here, one of the first things you learn about God, he exists, there he is. But here you have him as a creator, a worker. So when he makes man in his image, what do you expect that we will be somewhat? Workers. And that's what you see. The first man made, Adam. You see in chapter 2, a little bit further down, uh, there is a garden. But it is a garden that's not quite formed yet and ground that has not yet to be really worked by anyone yet. In verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. And out of the ground, he made man, breathed his life into him, gave him a soul. So then you see down in verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him right there in the garden of Eden. To what? To work it. To work it. To work it and to keep it. And he told him how to work it. And he told him primarily that his working in the garden would have to, have to do with the fulfillment of moral commands. Because the next thing he talks about is uh, where he provided for him, but showed him the tree of knowledge of good and evil and said, do not eat of that tree, but everything else you will have. And if you do, then you will surely die. We know what happens. Woman is made um, and Satan then comes not in the form of the woman, that's not what I'm saying. Uh, after, these are sequential, right? Uh, then here comes the serpent, deceives Eve and Adam, gets them to question their creator, and then they sin, first in their hearts, by seeing that something was good that was not meant to be taken. That was the command that was given. And, and so then they begin to hide from their creator. The one they're supposed to reflect. Now the reflection is murky. Like, wait, that's not how he designed you that's not how he made you you have now pushed against him you have now cracked the mirror of the reflection of God in you and here comes God to address the situation now there is sin in the world that was once good now it has gone bad verse 14 of chapter 3 the Lord speaks first to the serpent then he speaks to Eve, in verse 16, and then in verse 17, God speaks to Adam, and he says this, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground. Cursed is the ground. That which he put him there to work is now cursed. That which is what he was formed of, the ground, is now cursed because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So if God's plan for man went without sin in the garden, then man would continue to reflect God as a righteous holy worker but now sin has entered and it has frustrated the plan the plan of reflecting God and being a righteous holy worker but now one who is going to work and it's going to be the sweat of his brow and he's going to go out and he's going to work the ground and there's not just going to be things that grow up there that are good for eating and for making bread but there's also going to be thorns and thistles there's going to be weeds now it's going to be difficult labor 
And that's always going to remind him of his rebellion against God. So work is not a punishment. Work was good. And now here with sin entering in, this work became frustrated and it became difficult. Verse 23, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Uh, This is such a good reminder that the very first labor days had to do with pure, holy, righteous creator work. And then as it transitioned to us, made in God's image to then be reflection of him working in that same way, righteous, holy workers like God, for God, to God. And then we broke that pattern. And work became then frustrated and frustrating. So work in and of itself is not the problem. Sin is the problem. And sin frustrates it and makes work difficult. But God still has the plan for us to work in a cursed earth. And that's what Ecclesiastes is largely about. If you were to just open the book up, the very beginning, you've got the words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem, most likely Solomon, saying this, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? This is him writing a book at the end of his life, talking about how difficult it is to find meaning and purpose in life. And he's looked everywhere. He had so much money. He had so much wisdom from God to be able to have power and reach into everything that you could reach inside the world, the qualifier, under the sun. And he went and had it. And he went and did it. And he went and he wanted more of it. And he had that. And guess what? He got to the end. And it was this book laid out saying, I've gone for these things. I've gone to that thing. I've had this as much as I wanted. Wealth, work, honor, uh, looking into politics, looking into all kinds of things. And he saw life under the sun as a cursed place to live. If you look for meaning under the sun, you won't find it. You need to look somewhere else is the point. And that's what he says at the very end of Ecclesiastes 12, 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. He's saying, look above the sun. Look to your creator. Don't look to the things that are created. Don't try to be the creator and replace him like Adam and Eve did. Don't try to live in the world to make things that are made make you happy. He's saying, go to God. Fear God. Keep his commandments. That's what truly matters. So in chapter 4, what Solomon is doing is pointing out a number of different vanities. Things that you look to and you will not find fulfillment in apart from God. And work is one of those things. So this sets us up for our verses. Because we will just be looking at verses 4, 5, and 6. So look with me there. Ecclesiastes 4, 4. He says, Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. What we'll find in these verses is that apart from God, work is meaningless, but with God, there is a worthwhile work to be done. And it's found in here. 
There are some warnings to give you. There's three of them. Uh, The first two really set up the third one, and so we need to take them one at a time. And we need this message, not just because it's Labor Day and we want to be able to tell somebody, I have actually redeemed my Labor Day. I learned something about labor in the Bible. You know, that's not the point. That's just a sub-benefit, right? But you need this because what's going to happen is we're going to talk about work, but we're also not going to talk about work. We're going to look into work in a cursed earth, and we're going to see a redeemer and one who is not just created, but redeems our work. And that applies to everything in life that our hands find us doing. So the first, the first warning is the covetous worker. If you're taking notes, I believe we have uh, these here, the covetous worker. And this is a warning against jealousy on the job, jealousy on the job. So he used the word envy, jealousy fits, covetousness fits, discontentment fits. And really what he's saying there is, then I saw, he's looking from one thing to the next. Remember, this is like Solomon's documentary on life, looking for meaning, something catchy like that, right? Looking for meaning. And what does he say? Then I saw, and we're seeing with him. What did you see? Tell us, what was the finding? What was, after the experiment was run on life, what did you find about work? And you're going to learn something about what he found about work that you're going to find out. You're learning this every day. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. So one of the first things he does is point out a wrong motive for why we work so hard. And the things that we get wrong in this thing that we call the rat race. (laughs) Just running, running, running. Going, going, going. Trying, trying, trying. Next day, next hour, next week, next month, next salary, next job, next promotion. Maybe I'll get there. But what are we doing? We're looking left and right, and we're comparing our life to other people's lives. We're looking at our neighbor not as someone to love and build up and bless, but we're looking at our neighbor as a competitor. Well, they have more than me. I wish I had that. He has a better this. She has more of those. They have this, and I don't. And so out of that wrong motive, that place of envy, we are driven to do more, to work harder, to take on more, put both of our hands around life and to just try to grip more of it and squeeze more out of it. And we just really grind. We hustle. We go. And this is what he's saying is futile, meaningless. You've got the wrong motive. You're using people. You're elevating yourself. You're playing king of the kingdom. You're not looking at the one true king who says you don't use neighbors that way. And if there's envy in the heart, you know what it looks like. I could sit down with you and just, for some of you, it's I could watch how you use your phone. And you just look at a screen and you just kind of zip, zip, flip, flip, swipe, swipe. And you're looking at other people and I can say, what did you think of when you saw that picture? What did you think of when you saw that celebration? What did you think of when they got that promotion? What'd you, and you're going to say, oh, I, don't, I don't really care. Yeah. I try to dust it off like it wasn't a big deal. But no, we, we've got so many opportunities for us to look at things in this world and go, I wish I had it better. I wish I had it like them. Why can't I? And it's such a self-centered orientation on, on work and getting something out of it and thinking that we deserve more It is somewhat hyperbole to say all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy. 
But what he is saying here is that much of our hard work comes from competition. It's that way in athletics. It's that way in sales. It's that way in your workplace. It's that way when you're a mother at home going, well, you know, I guess I don't raise my kids like that mom. Or, you know, and you kind of think about these ways to measure and compete. That's the competitor here. You're looking at other people and you're going, oh, they're ahead of me. But if I worked harder, then I could get above them on the list at school. Then I could have higher marks going into college. Then I could have more of a salary if I get this accomplishment or that done sooner. And so everyone's just kind of competing like athletics. But, but you know what's just a waste, Solomon says? Is you could run at this and run at this and run at this and try to outsell and try to outwork and try to uh, go beyond everybody else. And then guess what? It's just a matter of time. You might have been number one for a little while. Guess what? Somebody else, that new hot shot, you know, <laughs> that new person who's got that competitive edge on you and they just outsold you. They just outworked you. They got better benefits than you. They got the, the life that you wanted. They are that rising star. And so Solomon knows this. He rose real fast. He got to the top real fast. And he saw what the bottom looked like as well. He dropped real fast. And so looking at this, it's a caution to not be so competitive with other people about when we think about work. Envy, jealousy, covetousness. Greed, all of these things can motivate us to want to work really long hours and work really hard, kind of that mamba mentality, if you know what I mean, and just trying to think, how can, I, how can I be number one? How can I get up on top? And he said, this is a vanity, a striving after wind. You're trying and trying and trying, and you can never catch the wind. You can't see it. You don't know its direction. It is evasive, elusive, and as soon as you feel like you've got a grasp on it, it's gone. You're lunging, you're running, you're chasing, and he's just looking at this saying, it's, here's the newsflash, you're never going to get it. And as soon as you feel like you've gotten it, it's gone, and you feel like you have to run again, back on the treadmill, back onto uh, this posting or this thing, and you're just going, 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 going. Envy can drive us to do things that are quite selfish, quite focused on us, and can take advantage of other people. In fact, envy, Titus 2, 3, is how we spent our days before we became Christians. That was what we were. We were full-time enviers, if that's a word, envious. Uh, we just were going envying, 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 passing our days in malice and envy is what he says. But when you became saved and your heart was changed, you didn't look at other people as how to compare yourself to them to try to get a leg up over them. No, you, your whole orientation on life has changed. You then became a servant to others, even if it meant they got success and you didn't. And you were glad for their sake, their good, ultimately in Christ. Envy is a big deal. We need to watch and see if it is there in our hearts. We are people who have possessions. We have affluence relatively. And you look at how your barn fills up, metaphorically speaking, some people literally speaking. Your barn has filled up. And you go, okay, wow, I'm like at capacity. That's pretty cool because I know other people who don't have a full barn. And you know what? I'm going to build other barns. <laughs> You're like, wait, this sounds like something Jesus literally talked about. Yes, in Luke 12. He warned the person who had covetousness 
in his heart that went out and built more barns, bigger barns, to store more of his things that he was going to go and try to find meaning in life through his possessions. And I'm just telling you, summarizing that parable, I'm telling you, go ahead and build your bigger barns. But if it's coming from a covetous heart, a heart of envy, then you will not stand before God because you will build bigger barns today and tonight you will have to give an account to God for your soul, that inner man part of you. So where is your heart in your things? Where is your heart in your pursuit of things? Where is your heart in your work? Many people use the word anxiety. That is a biblical word. That is a word that has become, in my lifetime, used so much more now than ever before. Psalm 127 verse 2 says, It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. What a beautiful verse. Psalm 127 2. Now I know some of you have to wake up early in order to get the job done. Some of you have to get up earlier than others. And some of you work a graveyard shift, and some of you are working different. And that's not saying that that's wrong. What that is saying is that if you are staying up late, getting up early because of anxiety about your job, that is a losing game. You won't add any more bread to your table if you are driven with anxiety to get more. But from God, we can have sleep. We can rest. We can pillow our head and say, you know what? I had more to do today, and I didn't get it done but I'm not infinite. I don't have infinite resources to keep going. Time to pillow the head and wake up tomorrow and trust the Lord and just put my hand to the plow as he has called me. And he gives you sleep because he's in control, not our desire to compete from envy. Well, second warning comes not just from the covetous worker, but now the careless worker. This might be more your speed. You're kind of going like, yeah, I'm not that driven guy you were just talking about. You know, I'm the one that's kind of like maybe looking for a drive. I, you know, I, I don't know. I don't really don't have it. Verse 5, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. This is, a, this is a different speed. This is a different lane. This is a different side of the spectrum, the extremes of the one who is covetous and then now the one who is careless or the one who's wasteful. And this is a warning against sloth as boss. Okay, so if your boss is sloth, it's going to tell you you have the day off every day. <laughs> and you just keep going and going, going, man, I got it made. Like, my boss is pretty good to me. Didn't tell me I had to work today. He told me I didn't have to come in today either. And in fact, I have a three-day weekend. No, wait. Oh, you know what? I have the whole next week off. You're like, you sound unemployed. Uh, but but you're, you're going like, man, that person who lives under the illusion that sloth is boss and that's best and you are the one we're talking about here. Verse 4 is the greedy person. They're too ambitious and not content. Verse 5 is the lazy person. They're not ambitious enough for the right things, and they're too content. The first worker in verse 4 went to work as an idol. The second worker here in this verse left work and became idle. You can say it that way. One competed with others, the other retreated from others. The one wants to get ahead, the other one wants to get away. Both work is meaningless because God is not in it. Guess who's God? The worker. The worker in both of these verses thinks that he is God. 
So in the one sense, he's going to try to arrange his life in a frantic way to try to get a leg up on others so that he can have more things. And then the other who thinks that he is in control of his fate, his destiny, his resources, everything that he has, says, I want to have it made in the shade. I'm done. I'm going to take a break. And that's going to be heaven on earth. Rest all day, every day. But what does Solomon and therefore God call this one the fool? The fool folds his hands. The fool is someone who is, this isn't someone who's like, oh, he didn't quite understand it. Or if he had more information, he would get it. No, the fool says in his heart what? There is no God. The fool says in his heart, guess what? I like to be God. The fool says in his heart, this is the way God might have designed some things, but I'm going to flip it around and push it back, and I'm going to try to design things better than him. The fool is brazen in pride. The fool is all flipped around in his mind. That's why you see the fool folding his hands, eating his own flesh. What kind of cannibalism is going on here? This is kind of an odd verse, isn't it? I asked the high schoolers last week, so when is the time you normally fold your hands? They're like, when we pray. And I'm kind of like, okay, holier than thou. And I was like, other times, other times. And they go, when you're, when you're done. You, you use these hands, usually. Use, use these hands to try to get work done. Give me the plow. Give me the shovel. Give me the steering wheel. Give me, and you put it in your hands, and you go to work and get work done. You fold your hands. It's kind of like you're showing, I'm done. I'm done. I'm folding them, putting them in my pits, you know, or putting them behind my head or, uh, you know, tucking them in my pockets. You know, I'm just folding them up. You know, sh- 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 we're done today. The fool folds his hands and he eats his own flesh. You know what he's saying here? It's like an Old Testament version of saying in that New Testament text, if you don't work, you don't what? You don't eat. Yeah, you starve. And in fact, that fool, this is hyperbole again, but that fool is willing not to work, but to look around him to try to see what he can eat when he is hungry. And guess what? The only thing he finds is his own beef jerky. I mean, he's got his, he got his arms, got his thing. You know, I, might, I might start with that. I don't know. I'd, I definitely don't want to go out there and work because that's too hard. You know, but what can I eat? It's an absurd thought that you would just start gnawing on yourself to keep yourself full and filled. But you know what? That is a picture of You trying to run your life your way rather than God's way, it just collapses your whole life in on yourself. Self-cannibalism. You will die. You will deteriorate. You will waste away if you are lazy. If you are an idle person and you have said, it's too hard, it's too hot, it's too long, right? And if that's the cry of your heart over and over and over again, I just want to play. I just want to rest. And you think these things... Oh, where is God in that? It is a total flip of where things should be. The fool is the one who lives as if he is God in his life, trying to come up with his own ways, but really what he wants is a little sleep, a little slumber, and a little folding of the hands to rest over and over and over again. It's an extreme statement, but it's meant to make an extreme point to see the folly and harm that's done when one becomes so inverted in life. David Gibson, a writer of this book called Living Life Backward, says instead of embracing life and giving himself to others, the sluggard gives himself to himself. So in the end, all that he has left is himself. And that won't last for long. There's no food in the cupboard, and he has to eat himself 
to survive. Laziness. Do we see laziness around us? Do we see laziness within us? Yeah. Uh, around students, you just use the word procrastination. And everybody kind of goes, hey, whoa, whoa, you know, stepping on some toes here. You know, and, and you begin to talk about what infringes on those issues of your heart. I always want to hear and understand how a lazy person thinks. How do you think about what your plan was for that? Or, or how have you been trained and brought up to think about work? Or how are you using your time in your day? Tell me how you think these things are all working. And as they just kind of flush out what's inside, you start to find out that they live and think very foolishly, very contrary to how God has designed them to work and to function in the world. Proverbs 22:13 might be one of those things that comes out of them. The sluggard says, there is a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. And this is kind of almost like a joke of a proverb. Kind of like, really? You're not going to go to work because you think there might be a lion outside that's going to devour you? You're going to come up with absurd things, ridiculous excuses to not go to work today? And we kind of laugh at it a little bit. And then we kind of think, well, wait a minute. You know how prone I can be to very irrational thoughts and very unreasonable things to say, well, I'm not going to do that because I just needed more me time. You know, I'm not going to do that just because I just, I don't know, I got a sore neck. You know, whatever, we, can, we can come up with so many different excuses to get ourselves out of work and not back into work. And these are legitimate. I'm not talking about, you know, injuries and, uh, and any, of, any of those kind of things that are legitimate things that keep you from doing certain physical, physically demanding tasks. But really, this is an excuse. This is a way of living your life with ease at the front. And that becomes your idolatry. Easy. That's the button I want to keep pushing over and over. Make it easy. Make it easy. Make it easy. Charles Bridges says, A life of ease can never be a life of happiness or the pathway to heaven. And yet so many people think that oh, early retirement, that'd be heaven. The easy A class, oh, let me tell you, that's the class to enroll in first. Do this every semester. I want to know, what's the easy A? What do I need to take? The job where you sit around all day and practically do nothing at your job, that's a dream job. Do, do you hear those things? What is that made up of? That sounds like someone who doesn't have any kind of biblical work ethic. That sounds like someone who doesn't think about who God actually is. That sounds like someone who's looking for the easy way out always. And the person who's always looking for the easy way out will never be at ease. Their heart will always be frantic. They'll always be anxious. They'll always be self-centered. They'll always be looking for something to give them an easier life. And if they don't get it, they file a complaint. Or they come up with other excuses. And so I find it sad how much we hear this around us, but also within us. But here's some balance, the third point. This third warning, this is about the content worker. We've gone from the, the covetous worker to the careless worker to now the content worker, a warning against worship of work. And this is really what we're describing in these verses. This is a warning against worship of work, thinking that you're going to get out of it everything that you're actually supposed to get out of a relationship with God. You've put God aside and you put work in its place and you've looked for it to try to give you the things that only God is meant to give you. Fulfillment, satisfaction, 
You're looking for that in work. Look at verse 6. Better, he says, is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. I see a contrast here. I see one person who's working, but one hand is full of quietness. I don't know what that is yet. But then I see another person, and I see both hands wrapped around their job, like almost like clutched on for life around it, trying to squeeze everything they can out of it. And not only are both of their hands busy and full of toil, full, overflowing with toil and work, they are also striving after the wind at the same time. And so this contrast is, is really good and yet really unsettling to us when we think about the way we think about work and the right way to think about work. But thinking through these, before we describe what that one handful of quietness looks like, verses 4, 5, and 6, we've come from the covetous worker who is never at ease to the careless worker who worships a life of ease and now to the content worker who is perfectly at ease. They still work, but their heart is settled about it. They still work, but they're not looking for it to give them peace and pleasure and security and stability. All of these things that God is the one who has promised that it will come from his hand. And he will deliver that. He will give that. The workaholic is in verse 4. The wasteful is in verse 6. The wise, or sorry, verse 5. The wise is here in verse 6. He knows how to balance his days. He knows how to both start and stop. The one could never start. The one could never stop. This one knows exactly when because he is wise. He fears the Lord. The first one, verse 4, has two hands around his work. The second one has no hands on his work. And this one has one hand, it seems, on his work, but one hand open to God. Quietness in that hand. Not busyness. The one is all out, the one is a dropout, and the one is there with a handout to God. So you've got now a contrast and some balance in verse 6. Busyness, laziness, and what I'm going to call holiness. Holiness is the right balance. So you've gone from busy to lazy to holy. Holy? What is holy work? Holy work? is working in the exact way that God designed you to work in the first place. Not with anxiety. Not with idolatry. Not from envy. Not being lazy. But looking to a holy God to provide the work in the right time to take care of all of your needs and to not look at the job to give you joy. But to look to God to give you joy. That is holy work, a holy work ethic. A handful of quietness, what is that? A handful of quietness is someone who has their soul well in God, rested in God. It is a peace of mind that you can't get with two hands wrapped around work at the end of that day or that week or that year or that career. It's something that comes from God. It's a calmness of soul Again, David Gibson in Living Life Backward. It's a word to capture the deep well-being of those who know their place in the world, content with the boundary lines of their life, and able to enjoy the fruits of their labors with a cheerful heart. 
You guys, this was the verse that really got me between the eyes when I was told, Kyle, we're going to do sabbaticals for our pastors to make sure we don't just run you guys ragged. <laughs> and you're up. And I was thinking, I don't need a break. Like, I'm, I'm doing good. Like, I'm, I feel pretty healthy. I mean, yeah, back surgery a couple of years ago, but that wasn't because I was working too hard, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, uh, you know, and, and maybe, maybe they're thinking, like, oh, you should start with somebody else. Like, like I'm good. Like, you know, I've got this. Um, I didn't see the wisdom that they saw at first. I kind of joked that, you know, that it was a, a sabbatical, you know, that bad was in the middle of it. And, you know, I'm just kind of like thinking, like, yeah, how, how is this going to really help me if I'm pulling away from my work? People need me. People are hurting Who's going to meet with them? Who's going to lead that? Who's going to make these things work? If I'm not there, that seems like, you know, I had a lot of, like, these were things that were a little bit more settled in my mind or kind of had to be, you know, kind of captured. These thoughts needed to be captured. But I was so thankful that I took this time off to think and reflect and look at how much I had put both hands around being a pastor send out all these text messages, emails, notifications, Facebook, Instagram, blah, 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 during the day when I'm working, right? And then I go home to see my wife at the end of the day, and everybody kind of returns all the messages at that time. <laughs> so what is a handful of quietness when you're a pastor with a cell phone and you're sort of a millennial? You know, it's kind of like, what do I do with this thing? Sometimes I want to throw it at the wall. Uh, but it's just, it was crying for my attention, just pulling at me. And showing me almost kind of like these whispers, not just my phone, but like me finding my identity in my job. It was like these whispers like, you need this. Who are you without this? If you were told to not be a pastor for four weeks, is that good or bad? I'm like, I don't want to do that. It's like, I love what I do. I love being a pastor. It's a joy. Some of you are very difficult, but I love you. <laughs> and... And I'm, I'm not going anywhere. I just want to love people. God put me in. Don't sideline me. Like, I want to run hard. But then I was like, wait, what is this one hand of quietness? What is that? You know, I started to realize I'm putting both hands around it, my identity in it, and it became an idol even. And this is so good for me to know that people don't need me. They need Christ. And other people are stepping up in such wonderful ways to lead and to serve and to meet needs. That is exactly how Christ designed the church and how he's building the church. And so I'm so thankful for being, in a way, sidelined to, to look at what's going on in the field and go, wow, God, you are so good. You're so much bigger. And I looked and started to look at my job as a place where I found acceptance, affirmation, encouragement, so after today, no telling me good sermon, Kyle. Uh, and and I, I just looked at it as like, this is where I'm going to find my attaboys. This is where I'm going to find those things. And, and it was something I needed to really do some deep repentance and confession on. So thank you for praying for me and your pastors to make sure that we're looking to ministry uh, as a place where Christ is ultimate, not us. Where there's one name that's lifted up, and that's Jesus' name. None of your pastors, but one. There's hope and help in him, and that's all that is needed. So to take all this and to bring it to a close, in summary, it's quite simple. It's quite simple. Without God, work is meaningless. 
whichever way you're bent wrong on it too, it's meaningless. Solomon pointed it out. We can all affirm that this is what is going on, but with a heart that is at rest with God. If you have been made right with God, you now have pleasure, peace, joy, rest in your heart. You're not working for your salvation anymore. You're not trying to work for God's approval anymore. Jesus was your approval, is your approval, and will ever always be your approval. His righteousness is so much better than any of your righteousness. His forgiveness covers any kind of unrighteousness in your life. And with that place of acceptance of the gospel and thankfulness for the grace of God in Jesus Christ, you have rest. When he says, come to me, and you came to him, and he said, I'll give you rest for your souls, and you found it, now you're ready to go to work because you're not looking to work to make you happy. You're looking to God and he'll never fail you. That's where we need to look. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for being our satisfaction. Thank you for taking us no matter where we're at, how exhausted we are, how tired we are, or maybe how lazy we are as sluggards, and pointing us to one hope this morning, Jesus Christ. He is and always will be our hope and the one to give us rest for our souls. Lord, in that place of rested hearts by faith in you, we pray that we will work wisely, fearing you and knowing how we should work with a worthwhile work that you give to us. Not being out of balance, not missing something, not thinking for a moment that we are the creator and king of our lives, but that we are subject to you. And we take our orders from you. We take provision from you. Everything that you have given to us, we say thank you. Keep us back from discontentment. Comparison in such a technology age with so much consumerism around us, help us to keep our eyes on Christ. That's where we want to look. And we want to work well until you return. And so that we understand what it looks like to live completely above the sun and no longer in this cursed world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.